Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning, as we will be getting right into our text this morning. We've got a lot to cover. We'll be covering the first 12 verses this morning, so let me begin by reading, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the, river, beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one, no man, separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Father, even as we open up your word, Lord, I pray for wisdom on my part as I deliver this message. I pray for wisdom in just staying true to your text, Lord, and and, and the text that we will be looking at, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, that you administer to them and speak to them, that we might be able to accept those things that you have delivered to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to say, marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. (laughs) Quoting the Princess Bride, if you will. Like I said, I would like to say that it is marriage that the Pharisees want to talk about here. But it is not marriage that they want to talk about. What they want to know is, is it lawful... For a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, any reason at all, is what they want to know. Now, before we get to the divorce part, 
I'm going to talk about the marriage part. Because marriage, marriage, well, I don't know if you know this. Marriage is the number one cause for divorce. (laughs) That is a profound statement. But it is. Now, just like marriage, the subject of divorce that we are going to enter into should not be entered into lightly. Given the fact that in a room this size, there are people who have gone through a divorce. There are people who are going through a divorce. And there are people who will go through a divorce. Not an easy subject. (laughs) If you have not gone through any of that or going through it personally yourself, praise God that you haven't. But maybe you have come from a family that is divorced. Or you know of someone very close to you who has gone through it. Regardless of it, some might, might say that it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. God makes it a big deal because someone always gets hurt by it. Usually the one that says, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm cool. You're probably the one that caused the divorce. <laughs> the other person that was fighting for their marriage is the one that's struggling. So let's set the stage here in verses 1 and 2 before we get into the main text from verses 3 to verse 12. And it's not because I really want to avoid the subject, (laughs) Um, but it's important for us to set the stage. And if I run out of time and not touch on the subject, then I'm fine. (laughs) We'll just move on, right? It would be the easy thing to do, but we will get to our main subject. But just setting the stage here, if you will, he says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished saying these things that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the river, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them there. You see, Jesus had now completed his ministry up north, up in Galilee area, where his headquarters was, which was Capernaum. He had been ministering in that whole entire area for most of his time. He had come down to Jerusalem at least three times in Judea, at least three times a year, because any good Jewish man or boy would come for those three holidays that, or, or, or festivals, if you will, that, that caused you to come down to Jerusalem to celebrate them. But 75% of Jesus' ministry took place up in the Galilee area. That's where he did most of his ministry. And I remember years ago when I was able to be in, in uh, Israel and we're crossing the, the Sea of Galilee and the tour guide, he looks north and he puts his hands, his arms like this. He says, 75% of Jesus' ministry took place in between my arms right there. And I just thought that was fascinating. Because we always think of Jesus down in Jerusalem. And the Gospel of John has the whole narrative, man. It's, it's down in Jerusalem area. He does most of the ministering. And he takes, he takes his, his Gospel and, 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 and the picture is down there. But the Synoptic Gospels, they are up in the Galilee area. And so now Jesus is done. 
He is done ministering to the people up in that area. And he is now leaving. And he is leaving Galilee for the last time. He is leaving Galilee for the last time. And it almost breaks your heart because you know it's coming. You've read, you've read the gospel. You know what's, what's ahead. But he had been preparing his disciples for this time when, when he started talking to them about his death, that even though they were headed north, the times that they took those little road trips up north, his mind and his heart was headed south to the cross. You see, he had to go down to the Galilee area because there need, something needed to be done down there and nobody else could do it except him. And that's why he's headed down there. And he's traveling south, but he is on the east side of the Jordan River. He's coming down on that side of the Jordan River for whatever reason. And he gets there, and there's a multitude. As soon as he gets there, a multitude that kind of starts gathering around him. It's not the first time that he had been been in that area. People had known him already. And so people were coming flocking to him. In other occasions, he had been down there. And so they knew him or they knew about him. And when he showed up, man, everybody came. Mark's gospel tells us that those who were with them, all the multitudes that came, he taught them. Here, Matthew tells us that he healed them. He did all of that. Again, can you imagine Passover is right around the corner. Within a month, he will be in Jerusalem having to go through all of that, going through the Passion Week and all of that. And yet he still has time to minister. He still has time to to teach and to heal. You see, people are in need everywhere you go. Everywhere you show up, man, people are in need. Wherever there's people, there are problems. You know that, right? (laughs) Even within the church. (laughs) And there are needs always. And Jesus is always willing to reach out to those in need. He truly is. It says that a great multitude came to him. Verse 3 says the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Now, it is interesting that the Pharisees would make this 20-mile trip or so over to the Jordan on the other side of the Jordan. You would think that they would just wait for him to come into Jerusalem because, again, like I said, Passover was not that far away. And they knew that Jesus would always show up for the Passover. He would show up for the other ones, but it was time for the Passover. It was right around the corner. And and you're kind of wondering, why did they have to go and meet him where he was at? Couldn't they just leave him alone and and just wait for him to, to come? Because that would be his final destination. Not just because he was coming to the Passover, but it was his final destination because he would become the Passover lamb and he would die for the sins of the world. He would die in Jerusalem. So they not only make this day's journey over to the other side of the Jordan, but what is interesting is the topic (laughs) that they want to deal with him about. Divorce. They want to talk about divorce. And so why in the world would they want to bring up this topic with him? 
given the fact that I'm sure they had so many other issues that they could fight with him about and test him on. But could it be? Is it possible? Is there any probability that because Herod Antipas was still ruling in that whole region there, that they are bringing this, this topic up of marriage and divorce, basically, and adultery, given the fact that he was the one that beheaded John the Baptist because he attacked him, or not attacked him, he, he hit him up. <laughs> he didn't attack him. He just told him, hey, what you're doing is wrong. John the Baptist came after Herod and said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so could it be that they're bringing up these, this topic to Jesus to test him, to trap him, that maybe, possibly, the same fate would befall Jesus? <laughs> because you know they're little tattletales. You know that they're going to run back to Herod and say, you should have heard what Jesus said, and I'm not the only one that heard it. Call for his head. You can, almost, you can almost imagine that that's what they're trying to They're trying to test him so that they could find something wrong with him. They're up to their old tricks. And, and, and the sad thing is, it almost seems like they can't even help themselves. They are so against Jesus and what he is bringing to the table that, that they just want him dead. They just want him out. It's so funny because at that point, they're probably not thinking, we're going to kill him in a few weeks. They're probably just thinking, man, we want somebody to kill them. And, and, and they will be the ones that end up doing this whole thing. But the question is, that they have, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They truly didn't really want the answer, I don't think. They're just trying to get him in trouble. The Amplified puts it like this. It sounds like this in the Amplified, that, that portion. It says, is it lawful and right to dismiss and repudiate and divorce one's wife for any and every cause? Now what is interesting at this point in the nation of Israel is that the nation of Israel is divided on this subject. Even back then, they were divided on the subject of putting away your wife, repudiating her, dismissing her, divorcing her. It was a hot topic back then, just as it is today. Maybe not so much in our society at large, but even within the Christian community. <laughs> it's almost like even within the Christian community. How close can I get there <laughs> without really sinning? Where's the loophole here? There has to be a loophole. You see, back then there was these two schools of thought. There were those who, who followed a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And there was also those who followed another rabbi by Shammai. And both were, were apparently Jewish scholars of the time. And Rabbi Halal took a very lax view of this whole putting away your wife and felt that, you could, that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason at all. 
On the other hand, Rabbi Shammai, he took a, 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 a stricter view, if you will, of this whole thing about how, how can one divorce his wife? When can one do that? And, and he took the point of view of, of a wife having been guilty of sexual offenses or immorality. And so there was a lax and there was a more strict view here. And so the nation was divided. But understand, any, any, any decision or any, any side that Jesus took on this time, at this time, he would have been wrong. <laughs> he would have offended someone for sure in the crowd. But he would have been wrong and they would have found fault in him either way. And I love the fact that Jesus never lets himself be put in these situations. Because he doesn't seem to answer the, 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 the question right away. But again, either way he would have gone. He would have offended. And I know that the Pharisees would have been all too happy to pounce on that. <laughs> and so before we get, or, or Jesus, before Jesus says anything about divorce... He talks about marriage first and what it was meant to be and, and the way God intended it to be. And so in verses 4 to 6 here, it says that he answered and said to them, Have you not read that, from, that he who made them from at the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so that, or so then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has brought together, let no man separate. That's the answer that he gives them. It's interesting that he would hit them up right from the get-go as they're asking him, is it lawful that Jesus turns around and says, have you not read Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. And he wasn't going to let them navigate this conversation. He knew which law they were talking about, as we will read later in Deuteronomy 24. He knew which one they were alluding to. But before he touches on it, he takes them to the very beginning. He told me to go back to the beginning, and that's where I'll go. And the fact that he tells them, have you not read? was such a dig on them right now. He was just like, mm. just put it in there before he twists the knife. He knew that they were experts in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah. He knew that they knew the law. And for him to say, have you not read, was just like a slap in the face to them because they knew the Scriptures. They knew the law. And they knew for sure exactly what God said. And they knew every stipulation, prerequisite, and provision that was necessary for divorce. They knew it. And Jesus says to them, as he says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? 
And so he takes them to the very first chapter of Genesis. When God created man. And on, on the sixth day when he did that, that he says, it is good. It is, well, everything was, it is good, it is good, it is good. When he created man, he said, it is very good. And it says that God blessed them. And he gave them a command. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You see, God knew that it would only be through a male and female that any of that could ever be done to fulfill that command, to fill the earth. What I find interesting, again, the fact that, that going back to the beginning, he said he made them male and female. And everything that we have in this world, for the most part, everything that is in this room, from, from everything in here to the seats that you sit on, from the glasses that you have on, for every, everything you have in your home is made up and put together by male and female parts. Everything. Everything has a male and female portion to, to, to stay together. <laughs> you can't put two female parts together when you're trying to do your plumbing or your electrical. They just don't work. It'll never happen. My glasses that I have on, they, there are male and female parts all over this thing to keep it together because God knew best that it would be, I can't see, where are you guys? I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That, 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 that God knew that male and female is how things get produced and things function and things stay together. When somebody tells you that it's natural the other way, you just give them two female parts or two male parts. Give them two light bulbs and say, make it work here. Two light bulbs. Show me how that works. You can't even charge your phone without, any male, or without male and female parts. Everything plugs in. Everything goes like that. And so God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. And it wasn't until chapter 2 of Genesis that we start getting more details of how this whole male and female thing functions when he says, hey, be fruitful and multiply. It's interesting because in chapter 2, and I don't know what the time, the time span was between chapter 2 and chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2, when, when all of a sudden God gets to the point and he looks at poor old pathetic Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. <laughs> poor Adam, man. He was just like bummed out. And so it says that he brought all the animals to him because he wanted to make him a helpmate or a, a, a helper comparable to him. And so he says, here, Adam, I'm going to bring all these animals to you. Find, see if you could find one that's compared. And I don't know how that whole thing worked. It just sounds a little creepy. But, but one guy suggested, it's quite possible that all these animals came in two by twos with the male and female. And he's going, dang, man, I ain't got a female. And it tells us, again, that, that he wanted them to, to, he wanted him to have somebody comparable to him. And so he causes a deep sleep 
in Adam, and, and, and he cuts his side and he takes a rib out of it and he, he sews it up and he makes a woman out of this rib. <laughs> and she's been a pain in the side of man ever since. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And it was, it was at that time when he wakes up and wherever he was at, where he gets out of his sleep and he sees this one creature that he had not seen before. <laughs> and he says, whoa, man. So he called her woman, right? No, he, said, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. It's like, yeah, right. He was going, is that mine? That's all mine? <laughs> and it's so interesting because at this time, God says, hey, a man shall leave his father and mother. There was no father and mother before that, but he says, here's the concept. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There was this oneness that he wanted from male and female that would be fruitful to multiply. And I always think of this because that's where my little pea brain goes. And it's like, I don't think Adam looked at her and said, what do I do with her? <laughs> I don't think he did that on one page. going, all mine? All mine. Sweetness. And he just went for it, man. And, and it, it was at that act of this oneness, of them coming together, that God says, now these two shall become one flesh. And he's talking about intercourse, people. Marriage, and that was the first marriage that God performed before them. Marriage is the first institution that God created. So you can understand why it's under attack still. And it is the only thing, the only thing that survived the Garden of Eden. Everything else was left in there, except for marriage. He allowed these two couples, or this, these two people that were now one, to come out and still produce and be fruitful. Even after the fall, he still honored marriage, like he does today. He honors marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all. And, and, and when he says all, I believe within Christians and, and non-Christians. Marriage is honorable among all. And the bed, undefiled. And that means that anything within the marriage bonds, as far as sexual intercourse, is pure and holy in the eyes of God. Because he says this, after that, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In Proverbs 18, 22, he says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so a man was to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And that is the instructions from the very beginning when Jesus tells these guys, Have you not read that from the very beginning he made them male and female and he says and the two for this reason they shall leave and the two shall be joined together and I like the way 
the, the old King James puts it, that she, he is to leave and then he is to cleave. He is to leave his parents, which means that he is to abandon, forsake, leave mom and dad behind, and he is to stick, glue to, glue together to cement and to fasten together with your wife. And it's interesting because when I do weddings, and I've done a lot of weddings, and in the weddings I just make it sound really pretty, at the end of the service these two shall become one flesh. And I kind of lie a little bit, but it sounds really good. And I tell the people before that this is the way it's going to happen because it really, they really do not become one when I give them the old okay. They become one when they consummate the marriage. That's when God says, now they are one. See, this, this is huge. This is important to understand of why God would say, you shall leave your father and mother because you're not one with them and you will become one. No other relationship can two become one. It is set aside and reserved for marriage and marriage only. Because it is initiated, or that it, 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 it's initiated in that oneness of intercourse that he says, now they are one. And it is in that intercourse that God created as well to be pure and reserved for marriage only. That's why Paul said, in, in I think it's chapter 6, don't become one with a harlot. Don't go out whoring around. Because you, you, you end up becoming one with them. Any, any other person you have sex with, you have become one with. And there's this attachment, and God sees it. And he says, ah, not good. Not good outside of marriage. Inside of marriage, go for it. As many times as you want. As often as you want. Go for it. Do it. That's, in the Amplified, it says that. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> And Jesus says, and the reason for this, he says, therefore, therefore, I know for you guys who have little kids, it's like, take them to the back. That's why you should, all the time. I should have put a disclaimer up there that I've put up there before. We're going to be talking about sex. Um, anyways, Jesus says, therefore, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. The reason why he did not want separation for man and woman is because man and woman, that man and woman has seen each other naked and he didn't want anybody else to see that person naked except the spouse. That's it. Because in verse 25 of Genesis 2, he says, Therefore they were both naked, the man and his wife, and there was, not, there was no shame. They were not ashamed. Because within the bonds of marriage, there is no shame in this intercourse. That's why many people, when they have affairs, they hide it because they've seen somebody else naked. And that's why they hide it, because there's shame in that. Even with pornography, there's shame in all of that. That's why people hide those kinds of things. But within the bonds of marriage, he wanted us to be able to stand before our mate and have no guilt and no shame whatsoever. See, God doesn't want you to live in shame. He really doesn't. 
He's not just a killjoy. He's like, geez, I can't go have sex with whoever I want. It's like, no, there's a shame and there's a, a penalty. There's a judgment that comes with that. And having, I think part of that judgment is having to carry that shame forever. Because many of you do. Many of us do. That word separate in the Greek word is horizo. It's interesting because it looks like chorizo in Spanish. <laughs> Which you actually do separate so you can mix with some eggs. <laughs> Not that I cook, but I know how my wife does it. Okay? It's interesting because that's the Greek word. It looks like chorizo, but it's horizo. <laughs> but it means... To place room between, i.e. part, divide, to go away, depart, put asunder, separate. He says, whatever God has joined together, man is not to break it apart. He's not to put anything between that if God has brought this together. This was God's design for marriage. From the very beginning. So as the Pharisees are asking about divorce, Jesus is reminding them about marriage. And what God had intended from the very beginning. And it still works the best today. It really does. He still wants one man, one woman for life. He still does. But that's not what the Pharisees were there for. They really didn't want to know what God said. They knew what God said. That's not what they were asking. As many don't really want to know what God says on this topic either. They, like many today, are looking for that little loophole. <laughs> Come on, Pastor. <laughs> Give me the okay. I can't tell you how many people, man. Give me the okay. I can only give you what the Word of God says. And so when Jesus tells them all this, in verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning... It was not so. In other words, <laughs> it really doesn't matter what God says. Moses, on the other hand, is what they're saying. They knew what God said, but they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. Moses, our great prophet, said this. And this is where they're taking this from. This is the law Moses this is you know, concerning the law of divorce. This is what they were referring to in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It says, When a man takes a wife to marry her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her 
and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his, do- out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God had given you as an inheritance. This poor woman, man. But you're almost wondering, it's like, why are both of these guys not finding favor in you? Anyways, that's beside the point. Really, the only commands that Moses gave here was that the divorced wife could not return to her first husband. That is basically the only command given. Oh, he does say, oh, and give her a, a, a certificate of divorcement. But it was not a command to divorce. He just permitted it. He commanded that the husband did give this wife that bill of divorcement. But again, he's saying, if and when this happens, you shall not take her back. The wife could not or, or return to her first husband after being remarried and divorced again. This was an interesting law and a wise law. Because the husband, the first husband, would have to think twice before doing this. Again, I've never been through a divorce. Never. My parents, grandparents, nothing like that. Aunts and uncles, that's different. Sisters and brothers. But I have not personally gone through that. But I have heard many a times, (laughs) after the guy gets the second wife going, dang, I should have stayed with the first one. And so this law would give the first husband pause to think twice before hastily putting her away since he could not take her back. And that was an abomination. Moreover, it would have taken time to find a scribe because not just anybody could write a letter of divorcement. It had to be a scribe. And they would give him time to think about this. And maybe these two estranged people can reconcile. And that would have been the best thing. The Pharisees were in, interpreting God or Moses' law here as though it was a commandment. And that's the word they used for Jesus. Then why did Moses command to give a letter of divorcement or a certificate of divorcement and put her away? And Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't a command. He gave them permission for divorce. But what did Moses mean by saying uncleanness in her? And that is where, again, because in the Hebrew, it means some matter of nakedness. Not necessarily sexual immorality or sin, Because if that was the case, if she was out whoring around, committing adultery, doing stuff like that, then the other law that took place in Deuteronomy was that she should be stoned. 
if she had committed adultery. But there was some uncleanness in her, some, some kind of whatever it was. And the phrase is equivalent to some shameful thing. And this is where this interpretation kind of divided the nation at that, at that time with those schools of thought with those two rabbis. Now, before leaving this section, understand that divorce, that the divorce, the, the divorce that Moses permitted here in Deuteronomy 24, it actually severed, it separated the original relationship that God had set in place, where he says, and no man shall separate them. It had severed that law from Genesis when Moses permitted it to be so. Now I know it's God's word and Moses was God's man. And God spoke to Moses. So in other words, God permitted the woman to marry again. According to Deuteronomy 24. Because in her second marriage, it was not considered adulterous. Because the second man in our text, in that text that we just read, was called her husband, and he was not called an adulterer. It's interesting. And maybe that's what explains the whole Samaritan woman and having five different husbands, and yet the man that she was living with was not her husband. She was in sin in that, at that point. So apparently the five marriages that that woman had had been legal and scriptural according to Deuteronomy 24. Stick with me here. (laughs) Because if somebody's going, whoa, 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 pastor. This means that this scriptural divorce, it does separate, it does sever the original marriage relationship. A man cannot break that relationship by his laws, but God can. He is the one that sets these up. And he is the one that can separate. The same God who gives the law to join people together can also give the law to separate them. And only God can do that and not man. Finally here, Jesus made it clear that the Mosaic law of divorce was a concession on God's part because it goes against the original law. Moses didn't command divorce. He permitted it only because of the hardness of the heart of the people. The phrase hardness of the heart in the Greek is sclerocardama. Let me try that again. I practice this, believe you, and I have to try to say it right. Sclerocardia. The heart, it's, it's hard-heartedness, specifically destitute of spiritual perception, hard of heart. Scarocardia comes from two Greek words, scaro, sclero, 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 
which means hardness, where we get our word sclerosis from. And cardia, which means heart, is where we get our word cardiac from. So these two words, this phrase, basically translates sclerosis of the heart. The hardening of the heart is what he's saying. And that's why I try to get that word down, because it means something here. It, does, it just doesn't mean the stubbornness, which it entails that. But he was saying there's this hardness of the heart that has taken place. And, and, and you are now looking for this divorce. God's original law of marriage left no room for divorce. But that law, God's original law, was laid down, put in place before man sinned, before hearts were getting hardened after sin. But I truly believe that all marriages that end in divorce have to do with hardness of heart. Somebody in that, in that relationship has become so hard that they don't want to budge anymore. Forgiveness is always an option. In all marriages, Christian and non-Christian. But there would have to be a softening of the heart that takes place for that to happen. But the, but the Pharisees were not asking about remarriage. You see, it was a given for them. They, they, they accepted the fact that these two parties involved would, would seek other mates because Moses permitted it. But Jesus said right there at the end, <laughs> right there at the end, as he's saying, this is what Moses permitted. This is what's going on in this day and age as he was talking. This permission of, of divorce. He says this, but from the beginning it was not so. And that's important to understand. That Jesus is going, that's not the way God intended it. So we've heard what God said from the beginning and why. And we've heard what Moses permitted and why. And so now we get to verse 9 where it says, And I say to you. So now we get to hear what Jesus says about this whole issue. We get to hear what He says because it's very important for us today. Again, we understand what the whole Scriptures are, and it's all the Word of God, and what was permissible and what was not, and all of those things. But we get to hear from Jesus when He says, Now I say to you, and that word I is really important, because when He did that, He was elevating Himself above Moses, and He was equating Himself to God at this moment. But I say to you, This is what was Jesus' opinion here, right? If you will. As king, right? We've, we've been studying through Matthew who, who, who looks at Jesus as king of this kingdom. And so Jesus, as king of this kingdom, proclaims to be what, what is, he, he will proclaim what is law in his kingdom. And he will command 
what he wants in his kingdom because he is the king of that kingdom. According to now the New Testament, according to the new covenant that he would now set in place, set apart for his kingdom. In other words, all the indulgences, the clemency, the pardon that had been given by the law of Moses, that indulgence, that clemency, and that pardon was to cease under the new kingdom. And the marriage relationship was to be brought to its original intention. And the reason being is because Christ, this whole relationship represents Christ and His church, the bride of Christ. And that oneness that He was telling us about and will tell us about. That oneness that comes from the church and Jesus because it emulates the oneness of Jesus and His Father. Because in John chapter 17, right before He goes to the cross, He says this in verse 21 to 23. As He's praying, as He's talking to His Father, He says that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and loved, have loved me, loved them as you have loved me. It's interesting because when the Apostle Paul was talking about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he's t- telling us the role of a, a wife and the role of a husband, and he gets to verse 32, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's almost like, oh, you thought I was talking about husband and wife? I was talking about the church and Jesus. That's what I was talking about because marriage emulates that. There is only one offense to make divorce lawful in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of King Jesus. And he is laying it out here for us. He says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. That's his law. That's what Jesus says. Only one law in my kingdom. It is sexual immorality. Understand that this is not that, that, that anything outside of that, you cannot divorce. And, and people, well, my husband is this and this and that. It's like you can't marry him because he's an idiot. You can't. You can't. No, you can't divorce her because she's a nag. You can't. Well, um, they just make it so hard. It's like, oh, get used to it. 
unless there's sexual immorality involved. He says that's the only law. That's the only loophole, (laughs) if you want a loophole, for divorce. Except for sexual immorality. And the word is fornication, sexual immorality. In some translations, it, it, it uses the word fornication. And fornication or sexual immorality is anything outside of marriage. It's called sexual immorality and fornication. Again, when you go back to chapter 5 of Matthew, when Jesus was upping the ante, when, when people were saying, well, I've never committed adultery. And he says, well, if you even look at a woman to commit adultery. And, that, and some people are going, that's my ticket. <laughs> I know my husband. <laughs> he commits adultery a thousand times a day in his heart. <laughs> Booyah, out of here. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He was upping the ante back then to say, there's no way you can live without me. You sin every day of your life. Because some people are going, dang it. I caught my husband, I caught my wife checking out pornography. That's it, man. Sexual immorality. It's interesting because the word fornication in the Greek is pornea, where we get our word pornography. And adultery can fall into that same category. But more often than not, adultery is specific. It has to do with going outside your marriage and being involved with someone else. Going outside that covenant, that bond, where now they, they, they have gotten involved in other relationships. So by the same law that King Jesus has now set in place in his kingdom all marriages. All marriages which take place after divorce were adulterous. If adultery was not committed. That's what he says here. Anything outside of that, whoever marries another who has been divorced except for this is adulterous. Now, now I know that this is just plain straight up and hardcore. This is what Jesus is saying. And, and he's not leaving a lot of wiggle room here. He really is not. And he's making it really, really hard to find any loopholes to get a divorce. And I truly believe that that is by design for those in the kingdom of heaven. It's by design. For those who, f- who desire to follow after him. Because again, he, he, he's been speaking and we've been looking at all about humility, honesty, and forgiveness. That's what we've covered in the last few weeks. And I truly believe that this story is placed right there perfectly. Because how bad, how bad can these offenses be in marriage that cannot be forgiven? How bad can they be? Well, pastor, it's adultery. It's like, and what? You can't forgive that? And I know what some of you guys, pastor, you just told me you've never been through that. So you don't understand, and I don't understand. I really don't, peeps. I don't. 
Not to that extent. But adultery is not the unpardonable sin either. It is not. And people treat it that way. Because I know many couples who have gone through that same situation. And I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying that it went away tomorrow. But they have stayed together. And it wasn't easy. But it's doable. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, they stayed together. Not for their own sake, because they would have bailed. And I don't blame them. But for the kingdom's sake, for the original law of marriage, and now for the law of Christ, which is love, how bad is that offense that you have to divorce? How bad is it? There are so many reasons why God hates divorce, and He tells us that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. As much as people think that it will fix something, it fixes nothing. Because you will always carry that other person with you, even if no kids are involved, even if they weren't yours. You still carry that person with you because you were one. And you can't just like slice it and it's like, nope. Nothing there. (laughs) It's like you will always be splintered with them for the rest of your life. I don't care who you are. It's no joke (laughs) here, man. What Jesus is saying here about what he says in regards to, to divorce, it's no joke. And that is why his disciples respond the way they did in verse 12, 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) If that's what it's all about. Man, oh man. You see, it was hard for them to swallow just as it is for us to swallow. How straightforward Jesus can be and how narrow-minded he can be in this. It was just as hard for them to understand. They truly understood the seriousness of it. They really did. <laughs> the Amplified puts it like this. If, if, the case is, if the case of a man with his wife is like this, it is neither profitable nor advisable <laughs> to marry. <laughs> in other words, if you are not in it for the long haul, till death doeth part, don't do it. Don't do it. If you're going, eh, we'll check it out. <laughs> Don't do it, man. You will get hurt. You will hurt somebody. Not just the, 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 the other partner, but all the family that trickles down all the way down. And all your friends. And all your relatives. And it just kind of trickles down like that, doesn't it? Many of you guys understand that. Someone commented, it says, couples are married for better or for worse, but not for long. <laughs> it's sad. In the last two weeks, I've done two funerals. And both of these were married till death do us part. In their 60 years of marriage, in their 57 years of marriage, not perfect. And one, one of the ladies did tell me, well, I never thought of divorce. Murder, maybe, but not divorce. 
Guys, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's, it, he says this in verse 11. All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Jesus knew that the world, those outside of his kingdom, would not accept this. But it wasn't given for those in the world. It was given to those inside his kingdom. It's given to us. It's given to those who desire to follow after him. It's given to those who will die to self. It is given to those who will humble themselves. It is given to those whom have, who, who, who have been forgiven. It's been given to those who have the authority to forgive others. And then he goes on and says right here about the eunuchs. The word eunuch, by definition, is a castrated person. One being employed in oriental bedchambers. By extension, an impotent or unmarried man. By implication, a chamberlain. Thayers puts it like this. The superintendent of a woman's apartment or harem. An office held by eunuchs. And then he says, one, an emasculated man, a eunuch, concerning these, these verses here. A naturally in, incapacitated, either by marriage or for begetting children, or one who voluntarily abstains from marriage. And he finishes off like this, and I, I, again, I, I, I don't even know how to finish this service. And, and transition right into communion here. But he says this at the end. He who is able to accept this, or accept it, let him accept it. Guys, understand. We've heard what God's intention was, what Moses permitted, but now we have heard what Jesus has said. Understand that Jesus is serious about this whole issue. Think twice before you do anything. Getting married even. Think twice. Think a hundred times <laughs> before you get married. Same thing with divorce. He died for all of this. Understand that, people. He died for all of this. And there is nothing that he cannot forgive. Even the mistakes that you have made. Understand that. So we're going to have about three songs here. And you can come up anytime you want. If you just need time between you and the Lord before you come up, take your time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for this moment, Lord God. I know it's a hard portion of Scripture. And for many, even in this room, Lord God, I know that it's tough. And Father, I do not take it lightly, Lord God, to be able to share your word, even in this fashion, Lord. But Lord... My hope, my prayer is that I have stayed true to your text, Lord, to your word. Lord, thank you, Lord, for being honest with us, for being so straight up with us, Lord. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, Lord God, you have called us to a higher calling, a higher standard, Lord. You truly have. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are battling these issues, even right now who maybe are considering not taking communion because of the guilt they might feel right now. And I pray that even right now, as we're in your presence, that they would ask for forgiveness and they would be able to partake, Lord, because you died. You died for all of this, Lord. 
and you can heal. Just like we saw you heal the multitudes that came. There's needs here, Lord, and I know that you can heal them all. So, Jesus, we lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.